Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. Uh, I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. uh, And uh, today we're here to discuss the current situation in uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, we are going to have two guests with us. Uh, one is uh, with us right now. Jeremy Benami is the head of J Street, um, uh, which is the non-ethno-nationalist large uh, uh, Jewish organization in Washington, D.C., um, and has grown uh, uh, significantly in influence over the years. Uh, Jeremy's family has a long history. I, I noticed in his bio, 130 years of uh, history, involvement uh, uh, in Israel, living in Israel. And so um, his perspectives are especially um, uh, important to us. And we'll be joined a little bit later by uh, uh, Rula Jebriel, another guest. Uh, but uh, let's start with you, uh, Jeremy. Welcome. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Um, so, you know, we're 10, 11 days into the current round of uh, conflict between uh, Israel and uh, the Palestinians. Would you, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the similarities between this round and past rounds. Is it different in any way from what we've seen in the past? Well, I think one of the most troubling and significant difficulties has been that the tensions between uh, Israel and Hamas have spilled into broader tensions between Jews and Palestinians within the state of Israel itself. And I think that's something that is uh, is new. Uh, There has not been uh, in prior rounds of conflict over uh, green lines or over borders, uh, however you want to look at uh, these lines. Uh, It has not been within the borders at the same time. And I think that uh, is uh, very worrisome. It, It seems that it is mostly groups of thugs and sort of hooligans on both sides, in a sense, uh, that are causing trouble. It isn't as if there's an entire civil war breaking out between the populations of these mixed cities. But uh, still, we're all not used to that. And uh, in fact, we had been under a illusion, and hopefully it's still the truth, that uh, uh, actually relationships had been growing closer and the work together on coronavirus and the you know, role of Arab citizens in Israel in the medical field, taking care of patients, and, you know, which had just brought a sense, perhaps a little bit more togetherness than there had been a feeling for a while, and then this has blown that up. So I think that's that's one big difference this time. Yeah, well, one of the things that we've seen is uh, 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 yesterday sort of a large civil action across Palestinian society, which has, hasn't taken place. As you mentioned, there have been these kind of conflicts uh, uh, between uh, extreme groups on, on on either side. Do you think the behavior 
of the Israeli government or the U.S. government or the Palestinian leadership in has been notably different from the behavior in past cases, or is it sort of following the script? Yeah, no, in terms of the leadership, uh, I'd say that everybody's following their scripts. You know, the uh, uh, Israeli establishment, uh, whether it's the military or the political uh, establishment, sort of wants as much time and space as possible to you know, work its way through its target list and, and try to take care of uh, what they view as uh, the infrastructure that needs to be demolished of Hamas. And uh, the Americans are trying to, uh, the American government has traditionally tried to give Israel some space before stepping in and saying enough is enough. And I think that's exactly what's been happening now for 10 days. And uh, the Palestinian Authority and uh, Ramallah is, is, you know, completely weak and impotent to do anything about uh, all of this. Uh, nobody else in the world wants to act before the United States does. So everybody's playing their their roles, unfortunately. Um, by the way, uh, this is a, a type of podcast that we do every week where we let some of our members come in and post questions. I'm going to let a few more of them pose their questions. They do this by going to the Q&A icon at the bottom of the Zoom page and typing them in, and then I will um, uh, go through them and try to weave them into the conversation. Uh, which sometimes I do extremely deftly and sometimes I do crudely by just reading them out. Um, but I, I would say that, uh, you know, with regard to the response of leaders, there is a notable difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration, it seems, gave the Israelis carte blanche. I mean, even beyond that, I think they, they were sort of encouraging them to be as aggressive as they could be on the agenda of the Israeli right. Um, and the Biden administration, had, you know, I think it was a, a week before they mentioned a ceasefire. They've been sort of leaning away a little bit publicly. Uh, they've tried to appear even handed, um, although they have gotten some criticism from the left in the United States for being um not as assertive in support of Palestinians um, as as many believe, um, in, including myself, by the way, the situation warrants. Um, what's what's your take on the nuance, the sort of behind the scenes strategy for the Biden administration in the current situation? Well, you know, one thing I would just note, uh, and then I'll I'll get to your specific question, but I, I would note that there was no uh, round of violence under the Trump uh, years. You know, this this uh, Gaza, last Gaza war essentially was 2014. Um, and so the dynamics where I say that there's no real change, I wasn't meaning that the uh, the Biden versus Trump uh, right. overall approach. Um, what, I, what I think is true about the Biden administration and, uh, um, you know, I think is actually a problem uh, is that the Biden administration was trying to change uh, approach uh, and, uh, you know, the traditional, it's, it's been so interesting that so many times administrations come in and this issue, Israel, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is at the top of their agenda. Uh, you know, the Obama administration got started on day one by appointing George Mitchell uh, as the special envoy. And the very first calls that Obama made to world leaders were to the Israeli prime minister and the Palestinian president. And Trump made a big deal, too, about, uh, you know, this was the ultimate deal. Uh, and he was the ultimate deal maker, and this was going to be, a, you know, a signature achievement. And you know, you go back and you see what a priority was placed on it by, uh, uh, you know, 
George W. Bush at Annapolis and the Rose Garden speech with the roadmap and obviously Bill Clinton devoting endless days at Camp David and, you know, back and back and back. It's always been very high on the priority list. And I think the Biden team came in and said our lesson, having now studied American foreign policy for the last 20, 30, 40 years as practitioners and, and students, uh, is this is a loser. Uh, and so let's not uh, engage on this. Let's let's do everything in our power to make sure this is not on the top 10 list, uh, not only of overall priorities, but even in the national security and foreign policy sphere. And maybe it's not even top 10. It's like not on the top 50 uh, of the list. And I think that is a big change uh, that this issue is so deprioritized. It is seen almost as a toxic issue professionally uh, for people to be engaged in. Uh, and, uh, you know, those who, who have an expertise in it were relegated to areas far away from it within the administration. And I think that policy of what I would call neglect uh, for the first hundred days uh, actually helped uh, play a bit of a role in how this got out of control. Uh, the Jerusalem situation leading into the firing of rockets that led to this operation. Um, so I do think that there was an effort by the Biden administration to change uh, you know, the, the place of this issue in American foreign policy. And I think it was a big mistake. Um, in the United States, a big uh, part of the debate in the world, a big part of the debate about this is kind of the origin story. And once again, as is almost always the case, um, there's a one group of people who say, you know, this was on Israel, how we got into this particular conflict. And they cite um, uh, efforts to expropriate some land and, and uh, moves by the uh, Israeli government uh, in the Al-Aqsa Mosque and uh, uh, you know, see this, and and we even had a discussion earlier this week with Alon uh, Pincus, an Israeli diplomat, who sort of said, you know, this is this is probably something that was encouraged along because Bibi Netanyahu thought it would help him politically. Um, uh, you know, he sort of came out and said this. A lot of people have suspected it. Um, uh, uh, on the other hand, of course, there has been a series of responses saying, well, no. It's really Hamas and Hamas launching, you know, barrages of of, of thousands of missiles um, at the Israelis. Um, of course, we get to the end, and you know, there's ten times as many Palestinians who have died as Israelis. There are thousands of Palestinian victims. The infrastructure in Palestinian territories has been absolutely devastated, including knocking out their only um, COVID clinic. Um, uh, the 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 consequences of this have been extremely one-sided. What's your sense of the origin story? So yeah, the, the search for uh, you know, causality uh, in, in this is, is relatively fruitless. Uh, you know, the blame game uh, is really uh, one of the terrible signatures of this conflict, uh, that everybody is looking to put the blame on the other side and, and everybody's looking to be the bigger victim. Uh, you know, the sad truth is this is two peoples, uh, the Jewish people and the Palestinian people, who are two of history's bigger victims. Uh, and the competition between them over who suffered more uh, is, a, is a horrific, uh, uh, you know, competition. And there's no winner uh, in that. And uh, the psych psychology uh, of both peoples, then, the trauma of both peoples that, that leads them to want the world to recognize their victimhood and, their, and, to, and to sympathize with only them, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the dynamic of looking for the cause. But I think objectively, 
um, there will be no peace, there will be no uh, end to this conflict if the parties themselves and the world do not deal with the fact that there are millions and millions of Palestinians who live in a piece of land that they believe they have a, a right to have some form of political self-determination in, and they have not got those rights. Uh, some people are unwilling to use the word occupation. Um, there are other people who use words that are far worse uh, than occupation that I won't use that start with the letter A. Uh, but however you look at it, there is a unsustainable and untenable and immoral underlying dynamic here between a powerful regional military superpower uh, and a people who do not have equal political rights in the land where they live. And until that is addressed in some manner, you will continue to get round after round after round uh, of this kind of violence. And who said what to whom and who fired first and who punched who, you know, and the kids come running out of the schoolyard to the teacher or the parent to complain about, uh, you know, Johnny punched first and Susie bit or whatever else, uh, you know, that we can't necessarily unravel everything. But when I look to the root of this, I say it's an unsustainable political uh, conflict underneath this that, that we have to resolve if we want the violence to end. Well, let me press a little bit on on that um you know in my own experience and you know i'm a jew my father was a holocaust survivor you know he was a zionist when he was a kid growing up and um uh you know i i've been very much exposed to this my you know my my whole life when i first heard jimmy carter use the a word apartheid um uh over a decade ago uh, i was kind of outraged and said this is you know, apples and oranges, not appropriate. Um, since then, I, I have to say my, my mind has been changed because if you have a country in which, or, or a region uh, overseen by a powerful government in which one group of people are denied fundamental rights because of the policy of that government have been for a long time, um, uh, then you know, I, you know. I think it is appropriate to 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 call it apartheid. Um, Israelis will say in response, "Well, you know, Palestinians living in Israel have the right to vote. Um, uh, their their rights are are limited. The Netanyahu government has has limited them somewhat more. They passed laws in which they say Israel is a Jewish state, which is clearly, uh, you know, a." dividing line uh, issue and, and renders Palestinians to be second-class citizens. And of course, Israel controls, even though the Palestinian Authority is nominally in charge of Gaza and the West Bank, Israel controls the borders. Israel can impose its will on it at any time. Israel can deny the flow as they are at the moment of aid in and out of those places. And the people there are are suffering. The people in, in Gaza have essentially been you know, trapped there um, for 13 years now. So, you know, to me, it's appropriate to use that word. Why would it not be appropriate? Well, I think it's not for me. And, and uh, you know, as somebody whose interest in this is uh, in trying to find that political route out of conflict towards resolution, um, I find that the argument over the words uh, actually is a distraction from the conversation about the solution. Uh, you know, the, the the folks on the left uh, have become very, very strident in wanting to force people to use that word or other words. And, you know, sometimes it's genocide or colonialism or ethnic cleansing. And, you know, there's just a whole series of words that they want to hear people utter 
uh, you know, to name the problem. Uh, and, you know, the folks on the right then uh, spend all their time arguing why a particular word uh, is either inappropriate or offensive or, you know, just doesn't apply here. When really what we should be talking about is everything you just described, right? All, you know, you went through a series of facts about the situation and, and, a, and a series of things that are wrong. Uh, and whatever the label is, it, it's it's its own unique situation. There's there's really hasn't been anything quite like this. Every political conflict is unique, right? And uh, there is a set of facts here. The people who live within the Green Line and happen to be citizens of Israel are in a different status and situation than the folks who live over the Green Line. There's a, even distinctions in the occupied territory between what really is happening in Gaza and who controls them and what's happening on the West Bank. And even within the West Bank, there's distinctions between area A, B, and C. And so, you know, the, the more important thing, I think, is to agree that what is happening, you just describe what is happening, the way people are living, the lack of hope, the uh, future we're condemning uh, a generation and generation after them uh, to, uh, that, that this is unacceptable. Uh, it's not in anybody's interest. It's not in Israel's interest because they'll never have peace and security. It's not in the American interest uh, because there's constant conflict in this uh, region. Uh, and it's it's not moral. It's it's wrong. Uh, and whatever you call it, it's wrong. Uh, and, and I think that the debate over the word is a distraction from the agreement that it's wrong and the search for what to do. And so that's why I try to shy away from spending hours on end debating people from the right and the left as to whether it's an appropriate term, and if so, where, and precisely what does that then mean? Um, I'd rather talk about how do we get out of this mess. Uh, uh, certainly a reasonable view, and I think one, you know, your, your organization has been notable for the reasonableness of its views. Um, but uh, let me ask you one more question, and then I'll go to some of the questions from the audience. Uh, we've got about 20 minutes to go here. Um, there has been some movement in the U.S. from um, politicians um, uh, uh, who are who might be described as progressive politicians um, to to get tougher. They've been frustrated with Biden for not being tougher on the Israelis. Um, uh, people like Senator Warren and and Senator Sanders have, for example, uh, spoken of uh, conditioning aid to Israel on compliance with certain basic human rights standards, um, uh, as we have attempted to do elsewhere. Uh, and uh, and and I you know I think some people, um, some members of Congress particularly, have been a, a little bit frustrated that the Biden administration has actually been too even-handed in its assessment of this. Do you think this is a sign of a sea change, as many people have suggested, in American political views, either for generational reasons or geopolitical reasons, or um, uh, you know, just the, as a consequence of the history of the past 20 or 30 years? Absolutely, I think without question that uh... You know, if you pull the lens back and you look over the course of decades, uh, you know, where we're at today in the domestic discussion of these issues is in a radically different place than we were a generation or two ago. Um, you know, the Democratic Party, the center of gravity has definitely shifted. I'd, I'd say that uh, when J Street started 13 years ago, uh, the sort of 
rational moderate positions that I think we hold uh, were considered radical and far out there. You know, we, we were the fringe 13 years ago and, and uh, certainly today, uh, you know, there are people way to our left uh, politically uh, and, uh, you know, the types of things that we stand for, I think, define the 50 yard line. Uh, I also think that's true in the American Jewish community. You know, I think there's been a sea change uh, generational and, uh, um, you know, it's partly related to larger political developments, both in Israel and here, as Israel has moved way to the right. And as we've had the explosion of Trumpism and, and the alignment of Trumpism with the right in, in Israel, it has uh, certainly had a, an impact on uh, liberal Jews uh, who still make up the majority of the American Jewish community. Uh, you know, they voted against Donald Trump 75-25. They identify as liberal and progressive. They want uh, peace and security for both Israelis and Palestinians. And, you know, I think that is a sea change, not only in, in the Democratic Party, also in uh, the American Jewish community uh, more broadly. And the Republican Party, of course, has moved way to the right. Uh, the party that brought you George H.W. Bush and James Baker, uh, you know, and that put limits on uh, loan guarantees to Israel because of its settlement policies 30 years ago and was called anti-Semitic, right? 30 years ago, that was the Republican mainstream. You know, here we are today, the Republican Party is dominated by uh, Christians United for Israel, uh, Christian Zionists, uh, Christian evangelicals who believe in some, you know, crazy theologies. Uh, and also, uh, you know, what is the, the legacy of Sheldon Adelson and, and the Orthodox uh, Republican uh, Jewish uh, coalition at this point. And so the politics have shifted dramatically in 20 to 30 years on all fronts uh, in Israel, in the Democratic Party, in the Republican Party. And so we've got a very different reality in 2021 than you than you had a generation ago. Yeah. And, you know, there's always somebody out there who says the quiet part out loud. And, and, and you had last week, Ron Dermer, the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. saying, oh, yeah, it's not the Jews anymore for us. It's the evangelicals. Uh, that's the source. And, and by the way, the crazy theology, which is this rapture thing, uh, and you need to have Israel in a certain place for the rapture to happen. It, you know, the, the sad punchline of all that is, once the rapture happens, it doesn't work out very well for the Jews. It doesn't end well for the Jews. That's one of my favorite points to make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've got a few questions here. I'm going to paraphrase them a little bit as, a, as, a, as, a, as I go through them. We've got about 15 minutes to go. Um, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll do them sort of in rapid fire, but you can let them go wherever you want them to go. Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the long, for a long time, the, the, the theory was, the answer is a two-state solution. Recently, there's been a kind of resurgence of views on both the right and the left that that's just not going to work, and that you know it's a one-state solution. And when the right describes it, they're like, you know, you know, it's the Netanyahu vision of the one-state solution. Um, uh, when when progressives or Palestinians describe it, they're like, well, okay, you want to have one state, it's got to be democratic. It's going to be democratic. Demographic trends suggest that it's going to be a state where there's a Palestinian majority, and 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 that's going to involve a big adjustment. What's your view on this? So yeah, look, I think that the uh, phrase uh, you know we all need to come together around a two-state solution has become the equivalent of we send our thoughts and prayers to the victims of the shooting. Uh, you know, when when there's a terrible mass shooting, and, and instead of passing meaningful gun control legislation uh politicians throw you know say that their thoughts and prayers go out to the victims 
And, you know, when something really bad happens here, or you want to sound intelligent on Israel-Palestine, you say, well, we really need to support a two-state solution. It's a totally meaningless phrase at this point. Um, you know, this is a very deep-seated conflict, as we've been discussing, uh, between two peoples over one piece of land. Uh, and there's really not that many, it's a pretty simple math problem, there's not that many solutions, right? You've got two people, one piece of land. They either have to live together in one state, or they need to divide it and have a border and have two states. It's really pretty simple. Uh, and, uh, you know, I do think that we are uh, so far away from ever sitting at a table where a peace uh, deal is going to be negotiated and signed to achieve a, a two-state outcome. Um, but the only thing that is less likely than that moment of, uh, you know, the picture on the South Lawn of the two leaders shaking hands and signing a peace deal, which I hope will happen in my lifetime, but I'm not so sure, um, you know, the, the only thing less likely than that uh, is that the Knesset in Israel holds a vote and decides to vote itself out of existence. Uh, and says, you know what, the whole idea of having a national home of the Jewish people, that was for suckers. Who needed that? You know, we were wrong. Our parents were wrong. Grandparents were wrong. Everybody's wrong. And yeah, let's just let everybody vote and we'll all take, you know, our passports and go live in the EU or in America and whatever else. So that's the only thing less likely to happen than actually seeing a two-state outcome is to have one democratic state that the Knesset votes to say, yeah, let's let everybody uh, come in right of return. Everybody can live here and everybody can vote here. So I think it's a silly debate because it's never going to happen. It's even less likely uh, than a two-state solution. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's a great uh, topic for discussion in, uh, you know, Peter Beinart's latest uh, new publication. It's a great topic in uh, Oxford debate halls. It's nice in the Berkeley quad. But, you know, in, in the real world, uh, this is not a topic of conversation. Yeah, so I hope everybody out there you're paying attention because um, what Jeremy's just described is a pretty accurate take. Um, one one of the two possible outcomes is impossible, and the other one is less likely, um, so, which which sums up you know how how my life it sums up my life. <laughs> it sums up exactly why this thing is continuing to be a problem seventy five years into it. Um, you know we're all aware that you know both sides are not homogeneous. There's a large number of Israelis that support. Um, uh, a just solution uh, uh, that grants full rights and protections to the Palestinians, one way or another. A uh, large number of Palestinians who seek the same thing. Uh, the, the 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 problem is, as I've said elsewhere, often the the governments are 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 not as good as the people. Uh, you know, they they they're they're flawed and. There's a lot of talk about the Israeli government and it's going through, you know, yet another round of, of voting um, on, on who's going to be the prime minister. And it continues to be undecided. But for those who expect the end of Bibi Netanyahu is going to be followed by something, you know, more enlightened and easier to live with, that's unlikely. But let's talk a little bit about the, the Palestinians. You've got the Palestinian Authority, which is weak. Um, it hasn't produced strong leaders in a long time. Uh, allegations of everything from corruption to inefficiency. You have Hamas sponsored by a foreign power, um, uh, de defined, I think, you know, accurately often as a terrorist organization. It, you know, what's the chances that that the you know the 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 leadership on the Palestinian side is going to emerge that might help us towards a solution? Well, you know, I think you painted a very accurate picture. Uh, you know, this is one of those stories where at the moment there is no hero uh, riding in on the horse with the white hat and, you know, sort of uh, 
figuring it all out. There isn't the Mandela and de Klerk uh, pairing uh, that can make this happen. Even the, you know, Begin Sadat, uh, you know, when, when you have these moments in history that uh, really, really tough uh, conflicts have to be uh, addressed and, and sacrifice and compromise has to be called for, uh, you need real leaders who history then remembers as, uh, you know, the true statesman um, and, and who you look up to over, over the years and the decades and the generations. And we're lacking, sorely lacking in that uh, on all sides at the moment. And, uh, and that is really sad. Uh, and, uh, you know, it does lead people to try to look outside for leadership. You know, that's why people do look to the United States or they, you know, try to look to can't, uh, you know, the UN intervene or, you know, can't we get leadership from somewhere else? But Palestinian leadership has to be part of the equation. And, uh, you know, those of us who are really virulently opposed to the policies of the government of Israel uh, cannot let pass uh, the opportunity to say, that the Palestinian leadership has responsibility here, uh, you know, and, and they have to own it. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the other piece of it then is, have we, as the United States, done everything we can to actually prop up uh, and, and help up the moderates? And, and I would actually argue that uh, what one of the real uh, terrible consequences of Donald Trump was the evisceration uh, of the reputation of the moderates in the Palestinian society by cutting them off at the knees and cutting off the aid and cutting off the channels and 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 just isolating them in Ramallah and then allowing aid uh, to flow to Hamas uh, from Qatar through uh, the Israeli government. The combination of Trump and Netanyahu actually propped up Hamas uh, and pushed down Abbas. Uh, Abbas is the only leader of all of the folks who were in power for the last five years that actually supports two states and wants a negotiated end to this conflict uh, through two states uh, and and we and we pushed him down and sidelined him and so i think part of american uh uh policy in in the coming years coming out of this conflict has to be to reinvest in uh the the palestinian authority and uh making sure that it is able to show its people something positive uh out of being non-violent and providing security and being uh you know recognizing the state of israel if you can't show that moderation brings dividends then people are definitely going to go in the direction of the more extremists. You know, one of the ironies of this is that we all have been talking about it our whole lives. There have been conflict there, you know, our whole lives. Uh, and it has been a front burner uh, issue here in the United States when you talk about foreign policy. And yet, I think it's fair to say that our policies towards uh, Israel and the Palestinians have almost never had to do with Israel and the Palestinians. You know, in other words, we were close to Israel during the Cold War because we needed an ally during the Cold War. We were close to Israel um, during, you know, the energy crisis and after that because we needed a stable foothold uh, in a region on which we depended uh, heavily for uh, energy supplies. We were close to Israel uh, and opposed uh, to some groups within the Palestinians during the so-called War on Terror period because our interests aligned with the Israelis um, on all of that. Um, now, you know, Cold War is over. We're energy self-sufficient. Um, uh, the war on terror has, you know, sort of taken a back seat. Um, uh, and the question, you know, I mean, it, it, for, for that reason, you know, going back to your earlier point about the Biden administration, it's kind of natural for this to fall down the list of priorities. 
But something else has happened, and it was you know triggered in my mind by your mentioning the money flowing to the uh, Hamas via Qatar. Is is that that where the Israel Palestine issue lands in the context of the greater Middle East has also changed because you have had the Abraham Accords, you have had um, the Israelis being able to strike uh, up um, constructive relationships with Gulf states. This has been in part because for the Israelis, one of the big issues is Iran. For the American right who support the Israelis, one of the big issues is Iran. Um, and Iran, in you know, in turn, uh, has been long seen as a as a supporter, um, both of Hamas and then in the north in Lebanon, Hezbollah. Um, do you see the Abraham Accords as a game changer? And I will tell you, just parenthetically, that I've had some conversations with some people in the administration. And which one of the reasons they were sort of going slow on this is they kind of hope a different regional dynamic is going to help resolve this. Well, I think that this round of violence calls the bluff on the, uh, you know, supposed power of this idea. Um, you know, the, the accords were struck because interests aligned. Uh, you know, they were business deals. They were transactional business deals that sometimes even had outside incentives uh, you know, for instance, the recognition of the Western Sahara uh, for Morocco or coming off the terror list for Sudan or, uh, you know, some uh, sales of weaponry for, for UAE. The, you know, there were little sweeteners added, uh, but by and large, these were, were transactional business deals uh, between parties that, uh, you know, share, share common uh, interests on the security, intelligence, uh, and, and economic uh, sphere. And Iran is a unifying uh, enemy. Uh, for both uh, Israel and, and the uh, Sunni Arab states. So, you know, I think that they were uh, understandable accords. They're a good thing. Uh, I'm very supportive of the idea that Israel should normalize relations with its neighbors. It's not it's never a bad thing when a country recognizes Israel and, and opens up uh, embassy and, and tourists are flying back and forth and business is happening. That's, that's all to the good. But there should be no illusion that this is peace. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing that is burning, the conflict that continues, as you said, 75 years, I put it at 100 years, but, you know, whatever it is, it's still the fundamental conflict is still between these two people that live there, not the Emiratis who are a thousand miles away, certainly not the Moroccans at the other end of Africa, uh, not the Sudanese. Uh, you know, the, the issue is, is, is Jews and Palestinians who both want the land of Israel or Palestine, depending on how you look at it, whatever was the British mandate, they, they still wish that the British had given it all to them. Uh, and that's the fundamental conflict. And you can't solve that by striking a business deal with the uh, Emiratis. And what I do think you can do uh, is you can provide sweeteners to Israel uh, to think twice about whether it's better being, uh, you know, the permanent occupier of millions of Palestinians, or uh, it is better being a fully integrated part of a Middle East in which they are a welcomed neighbor. Uh, and the trade-off in order to be fully welcomed and incorporated into their neighborhood and their region is to stop the occupation. And maybe uh, that could be packaged and sold to the Israeli people, because certainly they have zero interest in this issue, other than when the rockets are flying, when they're not flying, nobody in Israel is paying attention to this at all. And there's really no reason to give up the West Bank because they don't even really notice that there's an occupation. And... I think that the, the one thing that can be 
done with this concept of normalization is perhaps to put together a package that excites Israelis enough that they decide to sever uh, you know, their, their country uh, and allow a little bit of land, 22% of it, uh, to be the state of the Palestinian people. Um, yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that the Israelis said, said all along is, you know, we need these borders, we need this buffer, we need all of this because the Arab world could turn against us at any minute. If, if that doesn't seem likely, um, uh, then, then, then that rationale changes. But, I, you know, I think one of the, the, the questions that seldom gets asked here, we've only got two or three minutes left, you know, and this is, of course, a question that will, could take months to answer, you know, is, is, is where we go from here. Because as I listen to you describe the situation, there are political reasons for U.S. government to be involved. But those reasons are changing, as you acknowledge the the, the sort of a- attitude of of of, uh, of of Americans towards this issue has changed. As I often have noted in the past, you know, Barack Obama became an adult at roughly the same time the Israelis went into the uh, Shatila and Sabra camps and conducted um, you know massacres. So you know the Barack Obama generation of leaders is not the generation that was inspired by the Six Day War or the Israel that turned the desert green. Right? It's a it's a different group, and the generation after that is even less connected to all of this. All of the generations in the United States have had a terrible experience in the Middle East, in Iraq, in the you know Afghanistan's not part of the Middle East, but in the sort of greater Middle East, in Syria, and so forth. And I think there's a general consensus among Americans at this point that we do the Middle East really badly. We could have a bigger discussion about whether we do all foreign policy badly, but we're kind of bad at the Middle East. And so, you know, the appetite for getting too deeply involved is diminishing. The appetite for letting, uh, you know, others get involved who are not meddling is it is somewhat higher than it was. Um, one of those factors is that the number one or two trading partner of every country in the Middle East right now is China. You know that that there that the, that the power dynamic, the economic power dynamic in the region is changing. Now, the Chinese don't much have much appetite for getting involved in stuff like this, but I'm wondering if there you know that or other shifts suggest to you you know, that there will be different people at the table in the years to come, and that may have an effect on the outcome. Well, you know, I think one thing we didn't actually get to, and, and this will be a final thought, I guess, is that I think that this issue is actually better thought about as a domestic political issue in the United States than as a foreign policy issue. Uh, you know, I think that the real driver of what we do uh, is really the political calculus that leaders make about how it plays. And, and Israel has turned into, at this point, and again in 2021, it's a slightly different uh, political uh, dynamic, but it's part of the culture wars, uh, you know, and the, and the far right, uh, you know, grabs a hold of quote unquote support for Israel uh, as, uh, you know, as important as being pro-life and uh, pro-gun. Uh, and, uh, you know, now the, the left is seizing onto the plight of the Palestinians as being a parallel uh, plight to communities of color in this country facing structural racism. And so this issue is is raised to politicians most of the time uh, through a domestic political lens, uh, through extremes, uh, through the constituencies on their party's extremes, trying to force them into positions uh, of, you know, choosing a side, not on the basis of what's good for American 
foreign policy and our national security interests, but on the basis of the larger fights that we're having in our domestic politics. And I think that is the, the dynamic that actually sets our policy. Uh, and uh, that's a, you know, a terrible way uh, to set American foreign policy. Uh, but I think the reason why the Biden administration uh, you know, tries to do absolutely nothing on this and tries to put it you know, off on a back burner somewhere is precisely because it wants to try to avoid the political headache. But there's no way to avoid this political headache. And there's also no way on a policy basis uh, to keep this thing simmering at a low boil and not explode in your face every so often. So, you know, as I said at the beginning, neglect is not a policy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have to recognize that the domestic politics of this are going to shape uh, the decisions that leaders on the policy side are going to need to make. And they're going to change. And those, and those political dynamics shift. Exactly. Um, yeah, no, 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 no question about it, which, you know, uh, you know, when I first started in the foreign policy business, which is kind of 30 years ago, people said, if you want, you know, a, a career long employment security focus on the Middle East, um, because these issues are going to be with us for a long, long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, glib as that sounds, they certainly have, have, have lived up to that. Um, uh, but it suggests that you and I will have plenty of time for conversations about this again in the future. Um, sadly. As sadly, but uh, I, I, I hope we do because I've enjoyed the conversation and I think that our listeners have enjoyed the conversation and uh, uh, I, you've been a, a, a great, uh, thoughtful and uh, uh, informative guest and, and we'll hope you come back sometime soon. Um, uh, perhaps not under the circumstances of you know, the urgency of conflict, but when we can be a little bit more thoughtful about taking apart where where we could go with all this. Yeah, that's precisely the moment when we need to improve our policy is not uh, in the heat of conflict, but uh, in those moments of opportunity between. Well, with some luck, we will be there soon. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining Thank us. You. Thank you to everybody for joining us, posing questions to us. Uh, join us again every week. We do these kind of conversations every week. Uh, and uh, we're going to continue uh, our, our conversations and coverage of this particular dispute. Um, uh, over the course of the next few days, go to the dsrnetwork.com. We do four, five, six podcasts a week, some weeks. And um, um, uh, I know there's a bunch of really good ones coming up. So go there. Uh, and if you want to support what we're doing, certainly click on membership and help support what we're doing. In the meantime, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.